Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at verses 8 through 24 this morning. We uh, looked at verses 1 through 7 last week. But this morning, Paul's going to speak about having a clear conscience. A clear conscience. 2 Corinthians deals with Paul's own personal life more than in his previous letters. And this is probably the most difficult letter that Paul had to write. In previous letters, Paul had encouraged the Corinthian church to correct some things that were going on in the church that weren't healthy for the church. There were some abuses taking place in the church, some issues that had to be dealt with, and uh, they were occurring there in the congregation. But some false teachers in the congregation were irritated with Paul's letter, his letter of rebuke, telling these folks to you know, take care of these issues going on in the church, and these false teachers rejected Paul's warnings. And as a result, in this letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul was forced to defend his character because they began to slander his character. And also, more importantly, he had to defend his authority as an apostle because of the slanderous accusations and, and the things that were being said about Paul. His defense, that is, in defending himself, revealed the trials and the tribulations that he experienced. It revealed the problems and the pressures of his traveling ministry more than any other book in the Bible. And yet, like the rest of Paul's letters, 2 Corinthians looks beyond Paul's sweat and tears. That is, Paul looks past those trials, those problems that he had. And he focused on, he didn't focus on those. He focused on the power that was behind those sweat and tears that enabled him to get victory over these things, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the power behind those sweat and tears. His, Jesus was the power behind those difficulties that he was experiencing. Paul's commitment to Jesus Christ and his service did not in any way exempt him from trouble. And this is something that we say often, we teach often, and I, I think we forget about this when we're going through the trials and tribulations. That as Christians... No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how well you've served the Lord, how much you know the Word of God, it does not exempt you from trials in your life, from problems in your life. And we must never think that trouble for the believer is an accident. So whatever you're going through this morning, whatever you're dealing with, it's not an accident. It's not a stroke of bad luck. It's not because the stars and the planets aren't aligned right this morning. It's not a coincidence. It's not because you've necessarily done something bad or wrong and God's angry at you. You're not exempt from difficulties as a Christian. And everything, including whatever you're going through this morning, is a divine appointment. A divine appointment. There's only three possible ways you can look at the trials of your life when they come. All right? Get this. Only three possible ways you can look at the trials of your life when they come. Or if you're in one this morning. 
First of all, if our trials are the result of fate or chance, then we have no hope. Why? Because nobody controls. Nobody can control fate or chance. Secondly, if we have to control everything ourselves, <laughs> our situation is still hopeless. But, here's the third one, if God is in control, and he is, and we trust in him, then we can overcome circumstances with his help. God encourages us in all of our tribulations. How? By teaching us from his word. And that he allows trials to come. Jesus said in John 16, 33, you will have tribulation. That's a given. But then he gives the encouragement. He says, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. You see, your overcoming in your trials is because of Jesus Christ. If we have to control everything our li ourselves again, like I said, we're hopeless. Paul now explains the problems that he encountered that changed his plans. And, and, and should have been, that should have been uh, enough to satisfy his critics in Corinth who spitefully accused Paul of being wishy-washy. In other words, saying one thing and doing another, another. So Paul's explanation is why he didn't go to Corinth when he said he was going to. He wrote to him and said, I want to come to Corinth, I want to be with you, and, and as we go along, we'll see, it didn't happen. And because it didn't happen, they started accusing Paul of saying one thing and not another, or saying one thing and doing another, and you know, he writes this letter, he's coming, and then he doesn't come, and, and so this just started the ball rolling in slandering Paul, and you couldn't trust what he had to say. But again, Paul's explanation about why you know, uh, and it, how it changed his plans, that should have been enough to satisfy those people at Corinth who were spitefully accusing him, like I said, of being wishy-washy, saying one thing and doing another. He explains to them the problems that he'd recently been going through first for why he couldn't come. He says, first, there was a serious situation taking place. Notice the first part of verse 8. He says, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, notice, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure and above strength. The word Asia here refers to an area of the Roman Empire that included Ephesus, where Paul experienced a lot of suffering in his ministry. Today it's Turkey, Ephesus, and Asia at that time, it's present-day Turkey. The word for burdened here in the first part of verse 8 means weighed down. Paul was burdened. He was weighed down. Paul says, I was totally weighed down by my circumstances, and the burden that was weighing me down was more than I could bear. Paul had just written a very strong letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus. And it seems that he sent the letter with Titus, and he seems to have regretted sending the letter, but it was too late to get it back. So that added to the things that he was already concerned about. And then things just blew up there in Corinth. Things just, it just, you know, uh, they, they just broke out with a vengeance. Demetrius, the silversmith, he started a riot, a serious riot in that city. He stirred up the people to, 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 to a point of angry rage against Paul. 
A city official eventually managed to calm everybody down, but things stayed, uh, stayed serious and unsettled so that the next day Paul voluntarily left the city of, of, of Macedonia. It's not for sure whether this is the event Paul was referring to here. It probably refers to some uh, other event because as upsetting as, as the riot was, Paul doesn't seem to be actually in any danger at the time. So it's very possible that the riot mentioned in Acts uh, was, was just one of the many uh, incidents that Paul had to deal with at the time. The Jews never stopped stirring up trouble against Paul. And, and, the, and the heathen, like Demetrius the silversmith, he wanted blood. Acts, the book of Acts, records only some of the things that happened in Paul's life. Now, he might have been driven out of Ephesus. Demetrius' buddies, uh, they relentlessly followed Paul, and they came against him again and again. The suggestion behind the expression here in verse 3, where he says, we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, this, the, this expression speaks of a hunted, weary animal that sinks in despair, having reached the end of its strength. In other words, Paul, was, Paul says here that, man, we were burdened. I, I was so weighed down beyond measure, more above my strength, that, that he says, I felt like a weary animal that, that's just, that has sunken down in despair, and I've reached the end of my strength. I can't do anymore. I can't go any further. Some thought that Paul's health broke down because of his constant dangers and persecutions. But in any case, these overwhelming troubles affected his plans. There just wasn't a desperate situation that he was dealing with. There was also a death sentence. Look at the, the rest of verse 8 and verse 9. He goes on to say, verse 8 here, verse 8, at the, I'll just read all of verse 8 and 9 as well. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble with, uh, with which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure and his above strength, and here's what he said, so that we despaired even of life. Here's the death sentence, verse, uh, verse 9. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So Paul says, man, we even despaired of life. There was like this death sentence on his life because of all that he was going through. At the time, Paul couldn't see any hope of getting out of this situation. He said, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Now here Paul may have been talking about the life-threatening persecution that he faced in preaching the gospel in Acts. And when he asked himself the question, man, where is this going to end? And how many times do we ask that question in the midst of something that's just beyond us, that's, that we're just weighed down? He goes, when is it going to end? When is this going to stop? The only answer Paul could come up with is, when I die. And sometimes we say, oh, Lord, take me home. Take me home now because of, you know, the situation that we're in. It says, Paul says, we despaired, despaired even of life. The words mean, despaired even of life means to be at a total loss. Man, Paul was at a total loss as to what to do. Paul couldn't see any, any help. He couldn't see any way out. Paul saw his ultimate deliverance actually, actually resurrecting from the dead. Because he knew if he died, he'd be resurrected. So he actually saw his ultimate deliverance in dying, in resurrecting from the dead, as, mir as, a, as, a, as miraculous and as wonderful as that was. God allowed him, again, God allowed Paul to come to these terrible situations 
even to the point of death. Why? So that Paul might trust, might not trust in his own ideas and that he might not trust in his own strength or in other people's ideas, but he would trust solely in God. Why? Because God has the power to do anything. He said, even raise me from the dead. And then he had a divine comfort. Paul acknowledges God's protecting hand. Notice in verse 10. He says, who, speaking of God, delivered us from, a great de- from, uh, delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still <clears throat> deliver us. So Paul not only faced imminent death, but what he describes here is the death he escaped was a, was a horrible one. Maybe he was going to be tortured to death. Maybe he was going to be crucified. Maybe he was going to be sent into the stadium to fight wild, wild animals. Plus, even though he had escaped from an imminent horrible death, dangers were still all around him. His recent narrow escape from such a deadly situation encouraged him to depend more than ever upon God. And I love what he says in verse 10. He did deliver me. He goes on delivering me. And he will deliver me. Past, present, and future. He did. He's going to. And he will. That was Paul's victory song. And then Paul acknowledges the people's prayerful help. Notice in verse 11. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. As Paul trusted the Lord and and the Corinthians praying, that delivered him. He trusted the Lord as the Corinthians prayed and delivered him. We should pray for one another so that thanks might be given. You see, if many people are praying, if many people intercede, many people will give thanks to God when he answers the prayer. Whenever we face difficulties, we should let others know. Like the Borden says, we're to bear one another's burdens. We're to pray for one another. He said, he said we're to let others know so that they can pray and that God can be praised for answering the prayer. We should always praise God publicly for answered prayer. Just like we pray publicly, you know, for for those who have a prayer request. When that prayer is answered, we should also come back and then say, hey, that prayer was answered. We are going to thank God. We're going to praise him now for that answered prayer. Paul had his critics in the Corinthian church. His enemies, they were busy messing with him. One man in particular, Demetrius the silversmith. But he also had his friends. And that's what's so important about our fellowship and being brothers and sisters and friends with one another is we need one another. There were people who were praying for Paul. And he has a prayer request for them. He says, hey guys, keep on praying for me. Paul was a great believer in the power of prayer. And we should be too. When we pray... You know, when we pray, we take on those unseen principalities and powers that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. We're not wrestling with flesh and blood. We're wrestling with things that are beyond us, beyond our power, invisible things, the powers of darkness. So Paul was a, was a, was a, a, a believer in, in prayer. And, and, and he knows that we have this, this, this vigorous warfare going on with these evil forces. You see, prayer, and this is what we need to remember too, prayer is where the battle is lost or won. Prayer is where the battle is lost or won. 
See, that's how Jesus got victory at Calvary because he prayed first in Gethsemane. Now, we may not know how prayer changes things, but the Bible assures us that it does. And prayer is, prayer is just as much of a, a law of the universe as the laws of electricity and gravity. And I've been reading more and more where doctors and psychologists are talking more and more about the power and the effectiveness of prayer in people's lives. Because it can do things they can't do. Our God controls all the factors of space and time and life. He takes our prayers, he takes them all into account when he's making his moves in the affairs of the world. And John tells us in, in Revelation that before the trumpet judgments will be sounded, God's going to call an angel with a golden censer to whom it says much incense will be given to him. And this incense, which represents God's prayers, or the people's prayer, it says will be offered to God alone with the prayers of all the saints. It's only then that the action under the trumpet judgments will start, according to Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. It's a graphic reminder that the prayers of God's people are a very real factor in the equation of God's ways with the world. So Paul encourages the Corinthians, hey, pray for me, please. Because you can help by praying for us. Your prayers will work for my good, he says. We'll be protected from the dangers that follow us and, and, and that will give many more reasons for thanking God. And then Paul turns to something that definite, that's definite, a definite statement in verse 12. He says, for our boasting is this. Notice this positive statement. Our boasting is this. The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Paul, it, Paul is bothered by the mean and false things that, that, that his critics were saying about him at Corinth. So he defends his sincerity. Because again, they thought he was being insincere. He said one thing, did another. He writes that he's coming, he doesn't come. So they, they started being critical of him. They were saying these critical things about him. So he's defending his, <clears throat> his sincerity here in verse 12. He says, we behaved ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. We didn't behave in, in our flesh. We didn't behave in fleshly wisdom. We behaved by the grace of God. And he said, and more abundantly toward you. We did this more abundantly toward you, he said. The way Paul sees it is that there shouldn't be any doubt about his integrity and sincerity, especially at Corinth, where he had lived for a year and a half uh, and where he had won many people to Christ and where his, his life was an open book. They watched him. They saw him for a year and a half. And it was a matter of principle with Paul that the way he lived in this world was always blameless. And transparent and honest. Why? So that he would have a good testimony of Jesus Christ and before men. His conscience could bear witness to the fact, hey, I lived in, in, in sincerity and simplicity, not in wisdom. And I lived by the grace of God. His recent change of travel plans, the reason he didn't go, like he said he was going to go, uh, gave his enemies the things that they could hold against him. They said, that's odd. You know, he's odd because, or, you know, he's, he, you know, according to, you know, he was fickle. 
They're thinking he's fickle. That he's even a coward. <clears throat> he doesn't want to come and face us after he wrote this letter to, to you know, fix the things that were you know, being abused in the church. But in this situation, just like everything else, Paul was just being true to a higher principle. In other words, he said, hey, I want to go there. I want to visit you. I want to be with you. But what he's saying, hey, you know what? For some, for some other reason, God has kept me from going. You see, he held to a higher calling. He was, truer, he was true to a higher principle. He was to be guided by God and not people. He was to be guided by God and not his emotions, not his concerns, but by, by, by God and his word. Not by circumstances, not by worldly wisdom or his own desires. The Corinthians should have known that. Because they were given so many chances to witness Paul's character. Again, and his integrity and his sincerity. <clears throat> he says more now about his sincerity as, as shown in his letters. For instance, there was the transparency of the way he dealt with things. And, and it's affirmed by notice verses 13 and 14a, beginning with verse 13. He says, For we are not writing any other things to you, notice, than what you read or understand. He says, we're not writing some one thing and then you're understanding something else. He says, now I trust you will understand even to the end as also you have understood us in part. So he, he says, he says, he said, I, I, what I read, what I wrote to you, I meant. I meant what I said. There was no double talk. He said, there was no hidden meanings in my letters. He said, I dealt honestly and straightforward with the issues. There was no uncertainty. He didn't beat around the bush. He came straight to the point. Many in Corinth were willing to agree to this. They were willing to believe what Paul was saying, but not everybody. Maybe when Titus returned to Corinth, he told Paul, hey, Paul, and your enemies are still messing with you. Your enemies are still accusing you of being dishonest and fickle and, and you know, saying one thing and doing another. And it's sad to think that, that such a great person, a great man of God like Paul, had to keep defending himself against such a hateful charge, a false charge. The charge that he plotted with certain people in the church, that he carried on some secret correspondence, and that these confidential letters were very different from the ones sent for public reading. Now, he was sending, you know, Corinthians, some of them were saying, no, well, Paul sent us this letters, but he was writing letters different to somebody else. And yet it seems like these were the accusations being made about him, you know, which were false. And remember, the Lord let these things happen. The Lord let these things happen. Paul took these things to Calvary and died to them there. And you know what? That's what we have to do. Following Paul's example, when these things are brought against us, Whatever things we're going through, you know, whatever someone might be saying or whatever, you know, you know, we have to take it to Calvary and let it die there. Let it die there for the sake of the body and the unity of Jesus Christ. David went through the same thing. When Shimei was walking alongside the road with David and his army, some of his soldiers, Shimei is calling out, hollering at David, you rogue, 
you murderer, you stole the kingdom from Saul, you're getting everything, all of these false accusations, they weren't true. And Abishai said, David, let me go cut off this dead dog's head. He just wanted to shut him up because these, these were false accusations. Here's David's response. He said, let him alone. Let Shimei say all that he wants. Leave him alone and let him curse. And here's why David said that. Because the Lord has ordered him so. In other words, David said, the Lord has ordered him to do this. And he says, and it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. He says, you know what? I'm not going to repay evil with evil. I'm going to repay evil with good. And if I do good, and I just, just let this die at the cross, if I do good, then you know what? God's going to repay me for that. Somehow, some way, it's going to pay off. The only time Paul responded was when his ministry as an apostle might be affected. Because you see, if the charge was allowed to stand that Paul was a liar, who would trust him anymore? Who put any faith in his teaching? Who'd put any faith in the letters that he would write? You see, if they could discredit Paul, they could discredit the message. That's why Paul would defend himself. There wasn't just the transparency of, of the way Paul dealt with things. There was also the victories of that day to be considered. Look at the last part of verse 14. He says that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. The day of the Lord Jesus refers to the day of resurrection, to the day of the rapture. That's followed immediately by the saints that are standing at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's going to be a wonderful day of rejoicing, for some anyway. Paul looked forward to that day with a lot of confidence. In that day, the Corinthians would rejoice at the great privilege that was theirs in having Paul for their evangelist, for their pastor, and for their teacher. And he'd rejoice at having them for his conference and his disciples. And it's typical of Paul that he should introduce this subject, the resurrection, at this point in his letter. Because the judgment seat of Christ will be a time for regrets as well as rewards. It will be a time of remorse as well as a time of rejoicing. But Paul doesn't threaten his enemies. He doesn't threaten his enemies. Just like Jesus did the same thing. He said when he was reviled, he didn't revile back. When he was threatened, he didn't threaten. It says Jesus committed himself to the one who, who judges righteously. We need to commit it all to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul doesn't threaten his enemies because this is a reminder of a day that's coming when the Lord Jesus is going to deal with the, those who aren't saved, with the unconfessed and the unrepented sin in these people. And in saying this, it must have caused them to think about it. Paul had already mentioned the day of the Lord in his first letter, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 5. And he already mentioned the day of the Lord there in connection with the excommunication and punishment of the incestuous brother. You see, when you have a clear conscience, you'll be serious about the will of God. Look at verses 15 through 18. And in this confidence, 
I intended to come to you before that, uh, to come to you before that you might have a second benefit, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things that I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. So Paul's saying here in verse 15 through 18, he says, did I make these plans to come see you carelessly or randomly? No, he said he asked God to lead him. Sometimes Paul wasn't sure what God wanted him to do, and sometimes we're not sure what God wants us to do. Sometimes he doesn't give us, give us a clear you know, uh, uh, answer in the scriptures or in our heart or, or you hear that still small voice, and until we do, we shouldn't move. And that's what Paul did. He says, I didn't come to see you because I hadn't been, you know, con- it hadn't been confirmed by God. And again, he, ha- he, he answered to a higher call. Not to the people's desires, not to his wishes, but what is, God, what is God leading me to do? He wasn't sure, you know, all the time about what God wanted him to do. So he knew that he had to wait on the Lord. His motives were sincere. He did want to come. He wanted to go to the people, but he wanted, he wanted to please the Lord first and more. When you think about how hard, the difficult transportation and communication was back in Paul's day, I mean, it's even a miracle that Paul didn't have more problems with his busy schedule that he had. Getting around was not like it is today. Jesus instructed us to mean what we say. Paul was saying, hey, when I said yes, I meant yes. And when I said no, I meant no. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 37, just, just, he says, say just a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Your word should be enough. You know, if you have to build upon something that you say, it may mean that there's some, a lack of character because they're not believing you. For example, I remember back in the day, and, you know, before I was a, believe, a believer, and a lot of people still do it. And you tell, tell somebody something, and you back it up, I swear to God. Oh, I swear on my mother's grave I'm going to do that. But if you have to swear on your mother's grave or to God, which you shouldn't, your yes should be yes and your no should be no. Yes, I will be there. No, I won't be there. Yes, I'll do that. No, I won't do that. But to strengthen your promise with a vow shows that something is wrong. That a, per- a person with bad character is the one who uses those extra words to strengthen their yes and to strengthen their no. The Corinthians knew Paul was a man of true character because he was a man with a clear conscience. During his 18 months of ministry among the people there at Corinth, Paul had proved that he was faithful and that he hadn't changed. When you have a clear conscience, you glorify Jesus. Look at verses 19 and 20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Paul's preaching wasn't yes and no at the same time. It wasn't yes out of one corner of his mouth and no on the other corner of his mouth. It wasn't inconsistent. It wasn't contradictory. Instead, his preaching reflected the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God. 
because his teaching was based on the scriptures and the teaching of Jesus. You can't glorify Jesus and be deceptive at the same time. If you do, you will go against your conscience, you'll wipe out your character, but sooner or later the truth will come out. The Corinthians were saved because Paul and his friends preached Christ to them. How could God reveal truth through false instruments? The witness and the walk of the minister must go together. They must match. They must be the same because the work that we do flows out of the lives that we live. There's no yes and no about Jesus Christ. He is God's eternal yes, Paul said, to those who trust him. He said, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a definite yes. God does not make a promise to you and then change his mind. All of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a definite yes. And through Christ are amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. Jesus reveals the promises. He fulfills the promises and he enables us to claim the promises. It's all because of Christ. One of the blessings of a good conscience is that we're not afraid to face God or men or to claim the promises that God gives in his word. Paul was not guilty of saying one thing and doing another. Paul was not guilty of manipulating the word of God in order to support his own, you know, sinful practices. Let's close with verses 21 through 24. Verse 21 through 24. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your, uh, for your joy, for by faith you stand. So, Finally, when you have a clear conscience, you'll be on good terms with the Holy Spirit. The word, establish, uh, the word establishes in verse 21, it's a business term. And it refers to the guarantee of fulfilling the fulfilling of a contract. In other words, it was the assurance that the seller would give the buyer the product that was advertised. Or that the service would be provided as promised. The Holy Spirit is God's guarantee that he's dependable. And, and that he will do all that he's promised. And Paul was careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit and because the Spirit wasn't convicting him, he knew that his motives were pure, was pure and his conscience was clear. All Christians have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 tells us that here. In the Old Testament now, the only persons who were anointed by God were prophets, priests, and kings in order for them to, to do the service that God had called them to do. And as we yield to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit enables us to serve God and to live godly lives. And the Holy Spirit gives us the special spiritual discernment that we need to serve God acceptably. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, has also sealed us so that we belong to Christ and are claimed by him as we abide in Christ. The Holy Spirit also assures us that he will protect us. Why? Because we're his property. We belong to him. And finally, the Holy Spirit enables us to serve others. Not as overlords, not as spiritual dictators. You know, not to tell other people what to do, 
but as servants who seek to help others to grow. And Paul had promised to come and to use his authority if he had to. He said, man, if I got to come down there and, 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 and push my authority upon you, I will if I have to in order to straighten out the problems going on there at Corinth. But he says, I spare you. To spare them, he says, to spare you the pain of correction, to spare the pain of me going down there and having to, you know, uh, take this on. He says, he's giving them a chance to correct the problems themselves. And, and you know what? Having a relationship with God and having the word of God and having the, the, the power of prayer we should be able to solve the problems ourselves, whatever we're going through, and not allow them to get out of the hand where now, you know, like Paul, I have to go down there and get involved. You know, so, so Paul says, I'm, I'm not coming down because I'm hoping that you will correct this problem that you're having there yourself. Paul had warned them previously that their weakness and their sickness, remember back in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, 30, where he instituted the Last Supper? Paul says, you know, some of you are weak and some of you are sick and some of you have even died because of your failure to correct yourselves, to make things right, yourself. The false teachers who made their way into the Corinthian church were guilty of being dictators. And this had turned the hearts of the people away from Paul. And you, can't imagine, you can imagine why. They were being dictators. They were telling people what to do. And, and it, it made Paul look bad. It turned the hearts of the people away from Paul, who he had sacrificed so much for them. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment, God's guarantee and security that one day we will be with him in heaven and possess glorified bodies. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which i paul became a minister colossians 1 21 through 23 the holy spirit enables us to enjoy the blessings of heaven in our hearts today because of the indwelling holy spirit paul was able to have a clear conscience and face misunderstandings with love and patience if you live to please people, misunderstandings will bum you out. They will depress you. But if you live to please God, you can face understandings, misunderstandings with faith and courage. Father, we thank you once again for your wonderful word, God. And Lord, again, let us apply the, these rich, and helpful principles that God has laid before us, God. Help us to keep in mind, God, that you allow, you allow trials, you allow circumstances, whatever they might be. Do you allow difficult times in our lives so that we might trust in you? That we might see your power working behind the scenes. And that, Father, we can praise you and give you glory for your intervention. You're intervening in our lives, God. And, Lord, help us today to do the same, God. You've given us everything that we need, God, to work out our difficulties. Father, we have the Spirit. We have the Word of God. We have prayer. So, God, help us to live as Paul did.
to follow his example. Father, we thank you for the offering that we'll receive today, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your generosity, God. We thank you for taking care of us so, so well that we don't have to worry. We don't have to beg. We just, we just leave it in your hands, Lord. So we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.